Thank you so much, and good morning. So good to be with you, as well as those that are joining us online, whether you be watching now or in the days to come. It's a great privilege to be able to come together and worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been involved in a series in the book of Acts, and so I'd love for you now to take your Bibles, and we're making our way to the 25th chapter, and today we're going to be covering verse 23 of the 25th on into chapter 26 of verse 1. And to set the stage now, what we find is that the Apostle Paul has been held in custody, Roman custody. He has been an individual that has been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in Israel, but there are certain tenets to the Christian faith that have rubbed some people the wrong way. And so there has been an oppositional force. And that oppositional force was such that the Roman uh, leadership had to get involved. We're going to see parallels, as we have in prior weeks, of the way in which uh, a Roman governor combined with a Jewish king, such as was the case in the days of Jesus when he went to the cross, are working in tandem once again now. And here's this follower of Jesus Christ, and he's clinging to the promises we've just sung about, and he's having to consider very seriously, where is God? What is God doing? Where is this leading? And maybe that's where you're at in your own life experience this morning. So I'd love for you, if you haven't now made your way, it's Acts chapter 25. Checking out now, beginning in verse 23, on into chapter 26, verse 1. Luke the physician writes these words. And so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had nothing deserving, done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before y'all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charge, charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And as we're going to find in coming weeks, this will probably count as the most extraordinary moment, the epic moment, the pivotal moment in Paul's presentation of the gospel in the most unique, distinctive circumstances imaginable. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. 
Father, you know the needs here this morning. Maybe it's someone at home right now just tuning in. Feeling very disconnected from life itself. I pray in some way, shape, or form now through the working of the Holy Spirit, your words connecting with them. Maybe somebody is going to be watching in the days to come. I pray for the same. Pray for those that have processed your truth in first service. And now we pray for all those physically present in this service. In a sense, crowd them out. Get into the voids of life. Speak to the points of need. The person who's struggling right now with matters pertaining to parenting. Someone struggling perhaps related to work matters. There are those, Father, that are going to be religiously informed. Others will be spiritually curious, but in both cases, neither has come to know you as Lord and Savior. Interested in knowing about you. Some cases, very informed about you. But lacking a dynamic personal relationship with you. Knowing about you, but not knowing you. Praying, Father, that because of your word this morning, they're going to cross that threshold in some way, shape, or form. Questions are going to get answered. So, Father, we're asking that you will speak to them and meet them at their point of need. Now, Father, you know the needs here this morning. You know what keeps people awake at night. You know our tomorrows better than we know our yesterdays. So, Father, we commit now the coming minutes to you. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. In his wonderful book entitled Waiting, Ben Patterson pens some thoughts worth considering. Second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher in life. It's our trainer in developing humility, wisdom, and growing in spiritual maturity. And he illustrates that with an early time in his life where he reflected upon a situation that went bad. I winced in pain as I looked at my bloodied knuckles. In rage, I had slammed my fist into the dashboard of my car as I drove home from our last date together. Five years, I shouted to God. Five years, I screamed into the headlining of the automobile. That's how long I dated her, waiting 
hoping that one day we'd be buried. And now, now it's over. Nothing was working as it should. I felt as though God had reneged on his contract. I thought I'd been a faithful Christian, a good student, hard worker. I thought I was upstanding, moral, sincere. Man, I had loved her long, well. But you see, none of that got me the girl of my dreams. I kept all the rules, so I thought. Held up my end of the bargain. Why hadn't he? I had waited for so long. And then he adds, and now I'd have to wait some more. Second only to suffering, he writes, waiting may be the greatest teacher in life, trainer in humility, wisdom, and in growing spiritual maturity. And for Paul, for Paul, it's been two plus years in custody in Caesarea, and he's been waiting. And he's trying to figure out in the midst of it all, how do you get from where I am to where I'm meant to be? For you see, God had met him on a particular night that's described in Acts 23, verse 11, in these words. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So, Lord, if I'm meant to be in Rome, why am I here imprisoned in Caesarea? And maybe this morning you find yourself in that waiting room of life and you're wondering, how long? How much longer? And how do I apply the promises of God to the circumstances I find myself in? When we began these series, uh, we noted a basic principle. Times of isolation are times of preparation. The waiting time can be either wasted or it can be invested, but it's our choice in the matter. What we have to understand is that if we are claiming the promises of God, as Paul did, and we read about it in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, you will need to be able to link together with me this morning the idea of the promises of God with our preparations before God. What I want to do with you as we're examining these few verses now is to look at three significant reasons for preparing for the future, claiming the promises of God. And the first comes out of verse 23 and 23 alone. As you and I, as we wait upon God, we should prepare ourselves, first of all, for what we'll call the significant encounters God might arrange. The significant encounters that God might arrange. Because God is about to orchestrate something for Paul 
not as a freed man, because this never happened when he was freed, but rather as an imprisoned man of all circumstances. Now, I want you to see what begins to unfold here in front of your very eyes in verse 23. He's been waiting over two years, and now it appears as though the gap between promise and fulfillment is being bridged, but in a way he would have never anticipated, which happens to us, you see. Because on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, came with great pomp. Agrippa, let's, let's do our history. He's Agrippa II. His father, Agrippa I, was the one who had James the Apostle beheaded in Acts chapter 12. His great-grandfather, he was the one that had the babies in, uh, surrounding Bethlehem put to death at the time of Jesus Christ. In other words, what we're saying about the Herodian family, the Herods, is that they despise the notion of the sanctity of human life. This is the sort of person that the Apostle Paul is going to have to be dealing with, you see. He's the one that God in his sovereign purposes has permitted to be in a position of leadership in this particular time. When you're dealing with God's will, there's the directive will, there's the permissive will, and there's the decretive will of God that need to be fit under the category of the sovereignty of God, you see. So here is Agrippa, and they are deniers of the sanctity of human life. And there's history to prove that to be true. And furthermore, he finds himself in a situation where Agrippa has been accompanied by Bernice, his sister. This is an interesting phenomena, king of the Jews, you see. Because Bernice would get involved with a Roman commander by the name of Titus, who would become emperor of Rome. Prior to becoming emperor, he would embark upon the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Her life would become entangled in confusion. In this particular moment, you see, Agrippa and Bernice, brother and sister, come in. Furthermore, we are told they came with great pomp. The Greek word phantasia carries with the idea of show, display, performance. This is their moment to get decked out in royalty, you see. So they came in with great pomp. Governor Festus of the Romans, he's organized this. Or has he? Or has God organized this, you see? Well, we're looking at a horizontal level of such, and so as they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, you ask, well, Gary, who are the military tribunes? And I'm so glad you asked that question, you see. Because there were five military tribunes positioned in Caesarea, each of which was responsible for overseeing a Roman cohort. And so now you've got the major military personnel likewise seated, arranged in this setting. To top it off, 
You and I are furthermore informed that the prominent men of the city are there. You're still in verse 23. These were the local politicians that have been pulled together. So by and large, you are dealing with secular unbelievers. Though Agrippa was a religious unbeliever, he was greatly informed, as was his sister Bernice, in the history of Judaism. Now Festus issues this command. Everybody is now seated. There's this sense of anticipation. Meanwhile, Paul the Apostle, for two plus years in custody, this is the moment. Festus, not at Paul's choice, will. Rather, Festus, at the command of Festus, it was such that Paul was brought in. Talk about the denial of freedom and liberty. Can God work in circumstances where there seems to be restricted liberty, where there is an overreach of governmental involvement, you see? Here's Paul. Here's Festus. Here's Agrippa and Bernice. But you see, here's God. And who is organizing this and this significant encounter anyways, you see. Paul's been in the waiting room of life. You know the scenario. You've been sitting in your waiting room, the waiting room of your physician's office for perhaps 20 minutes and then a half hour and then 45 minutes and so on. How are you going to react to all that? I know you. You're grateful for the chance to catch up on the 1993 Reader's Digest, aren't you? (laughs) Are you ready for the appointment? This man wasn't. Years ago, we were told during the presidential term of Dwight Eisenhower, the president was vacationing in Denver, came to his attention that there was this six-year-old boy His name is Paul Haley. He's dying of an incurable cancer. Well, he had one great dream, and it was someday to see the president. Well, Dwight Eisenhower made an act that will outlive his great speeches. When he said to one of his aides, let's go see young Paul. Well, they got in the presidential limousine and they drove over one August Sunday morning to the home of Paul Haley, who didn't know he was coming. Flags on the fenders were flying, black limousine drove up, doors flew open. Out walked the president, knocked on the door. Now, the father, Mr. Haley, let's just say... He wasn't ready, didn't look the part, stating it mildly, opens the door, yes, can I help you? And the president responded, is Paul here? Tell him the president would like to see him. And we're told 
that little Paul, to his amazement, walked around his father's legs and stood and looked into the face of the man he most admired, Dwight Eisenhower, who knelt down, shook his hand, took him out to see the presidential limousine, and before he said goodbye, hugged little Paul Haley, shook hands again, and left. And oh, were the neighbors talking. Everybody was excited except for one particular man, Paul's dad, not terribly happy about the situation, who said as AP Press and others, newscasters, were interviewing him, how can I ever forget standing there dressed like I was to meet the President of the United States? I just wasn't prepared. For the Apostle Paul, what he needs to understand is that times of isolation are times of preparation. And now, can you picture, appearance-wise, the stark contrast between the outward appearance of Agrippa, the military personnel and the likes, and the prisoner, drab in appearance, who comes walking in. What the Apostle Paul is going to have to do is to link together the promises of God. Because not only had he heard in, in his time of custody, in the midst of this two-plus-year period, take courage, for he has, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That furthermore, and you read about it in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, didn't you? At a time when that mentor, that disciple, Ananias, was told by God to take under his wing Paul, and Agrippa, or rather Ananias, wanted to push back on it, God made this promise, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, and now he is about to stand before the king. Now, the wise individual invests during the waiting time in linking together the promises of God. Don't take one promise and isolate it from other promises. Rather, the wise individual who invests the time in the waiting period, rather than waste the time in the waiting period, sees how one promise and another promise are meant to come together in such a way to bring an added sense of readiness to the situation, to the situation at hand. I've been reading the course of these days on military readiness, concepts, choices, and consequences by Richard Betts, who raises three questions for military professionals to consider. First of all, the readiness for when. Military professionals have to define the timeline 
of when capabilities must be available for a mission. Second of all, readiness for what? This question focuses on what type of mission or conflict the military expects to face. Thirdly, readiness for what? Readiness of what? The military must determine what capacities and capabilities are required and the timelines associated with each element of the joint force. Questions. It's the questions of our preparations. Now what you and I need to do is to develop a series of questions in our, in our waiting periods of life. When we're getting tired of reading the 1993 Reader's Digest, even though we're updating ourselves on it. And in the process, you want to be cutting edge. And now you link one promise to another, and you link furthermore the sense of question with the sense of anticipation. What's God doing? And how is God preparing? And how are the times of isolation to be viewed as times of preparation? And there's your first of the three reasons. As we wait upon God, number one, we should prepare ourselves for the significant encounters God might arrange that you nor I might be able or willing to orchestrate on our own terms and it took Paul in custody, waiting for two years for such an arrangement to take place, you see. What he considers to be ideal, God. Paul does not necessarily consider to be ideal. But God will take what we consider to be the less than ideals and put together an ideal plan to achieve his purposes for his glory, even in the most un realistic expectations that we might have in our own thought processes. Ideals and less than ideals converge for his glory. The significant encounters God might arrange in 23 lead us second of all that as you and I, as we wait upon God, we should prepare ourselves furthermore for the slow processes God could choose. Here's Paul now. And you're up to verse 24. You've exhausted verse 23. Squeezed what you could out of it. And now here's the governor. Festus. Now, he's in the line of governors, Roman governors, such as Pontius Pilate and his predecessor, Felix. Festus said, King Agrippa... And all who are present with us. You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. And I can almost, can't you now see Paul, his eyes get real wide. He wants to say, I'm Jewish. I didn't sign that petition. I know a lot of Jewish Christians they didn't sign that petition. They came to saving faith in Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. But what we find now is political exaggeration. Why? 
In Festus's case, he knows the history that his predecessors have had in terms of tensions with the Jewish population on one hand and Rome on the other. His predecessor, Felix, was recalled back to Rome, as I've noted in prior weeks, to give an account to Nero, the emperor, because the Jews, in oppositional force, had petitioned for his removal, that he had been heavy-handed in the way in which he had governed. Festus is very interested in a longer-term governorship than Felix experienced. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, and then to up the ante, not only does he talk numerically, he also brings in the sense of volume, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. What do you do now? Paul's got to claim the promises of God. If in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, God promised Paul that he would minister in Rome, that means then he's not going to die. Allow for your current emotional state to be governed by the promises of God in the most difficult times in which you might find yourself in. Allow for truth to be applied to life. The promises are applicable. And so now, here he's listening in. And you could almost, at this point, sense a pin drop. But there in verse 25 is that classic word that appears in the Bible that offers you, offers me contrast. It's the word but. But. I found that he had not done, he had done nothing deserving death. And Paul is saying, so why have I been here so long? Maybe you feel that way. But the reason is, frankly, he was being held in custody because Rome was protecting him from Jewish antagonists. Sometimes your less than ideal circumstances are in reality God's means of protecting you. What is it that God is protecting you from this morning? Consider the various questions of preparations. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord, that's Nero, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before y'all, he's southern, you see, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. And you begin to wonder, how does all this fit together? What's the purpose in all this? And how will God used Paul's training and background and experiences to make a difference for such a time as this. And then I think of a man named Jim. And Jim was born 
1968 in Dallas, Texas. His mother was an elementary school librarian. Maternal grandparents owned a small dry cleaning business. Father, paternal grandparents, dairy farm. Parents divorced when he was four. Lived with his mother and older brother for a time in his grandparents' garage apartment where they grappled with the whys of life. Became a Christian at the age of eight. Mother remarried when he was 12 and family moved to Garland, Texas with his stepfather. He attended high school in Garland, participated in the close-up Washington Civic Education Program, and a Bachelor of Science degree in secondary education specializing in speech and history at the University of Texas at Austin in 1990. And then sensing God prompting him, went on to get a master's degree in divinity at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1994 uh, with the idea that uh, he would go into some form of full-time ministry. Worked for the Baptist General Conference in Oklahoma. Became director of Falls Creek, the largest Christian camp in the United States. And then a turn of events. A certain congresswoman decided that she would not re-up for election, but rather run for governor of Oklahoma. He threw his hat into the ring, this camp director with his Master of Divinity degree. In a field of seven candidates for the Republican position, he came in first and was elected to the United States House of Representatives, Oklahoma's fifth congressional district. Well, in 2014, Dr. Thomas Colburn, he was a very gifted senator. Dr. Colburn, MD, retired from the Senate. There was a special election, and you guessed it. Jim won. Jim Lankford is the junior senator from the state of Oklahoma. He found himself in the midst of the Obama administration, invited with the, a group of other senators to discuss something with regards to the involvement of external forces, particularly nations and groups, and their impact upon, upon our treasury, upon our information, upon our economic system, and want to talk through matters of vulnerabilities. He was present. When it was his turn to speak, how did God prepare him for such a time as this? Engaging with Mr. Obama, Senator Langford referenced Isaiah chapter 39 where the king of Babylon sent envoys and letters and a present to King Hezekiah, king, king of the Jews, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. 
And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show these Babylonian envoys. And then Mr. Langford pointed out to those present in that meeting, years later, with such knowledge, the Babylonians came and conquered the Israelites and swept the Jews into captivity. He used his time of preparation for a moment that only God could orchestrate. Likewise, in your waiting period, there's going to be expectations involved. Don't let the expectations diminish. Link the promises of one to the promise of another. And as you ponder the waiting periods of the Old Testament, and you think about Abram, who had been promised a son and had to wait. And there's Joseph who was in prison and had to wait. There was Moses out in the wilderness tending sheep, and he had to wait. And there was David, who had been anointed king, and then he had to wait. The waiting time is such that in the midst of isolation, this is to be a time of preparation. Moses learned how to tend sheep in the wilderness because someday he would have to tend the flock of Israel in the wilderness. And so you're up to verse 27. See, now Festus is pulled in Agrippa because Agrippa knows something about the Jews. He was steeped in classical languages, but he also understood Jewish history. So he turns now to Agrippa Festus does. And so the religious unbeliever, Agrippa, combined with the secular unbeliever, Festus, have to think this through. Because in verse 27, you and I are informed, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him charges. And of course, Rome had to put charges over the cross of Jesus Christ. And now charges are needed to send Paul from Caesarea to Rome, which means then that God is going to use the false accusations of those opposed to the Apostle Paul as the means of developing charges by which the Apostle Paul will then fulfill the promise of God to moving from Caesarea to Rome. Are you amazed? This is your God. And he will not be thwarted. What have you covered so far? Well, as we wait upon God, we should prepare ourselves, first of all, for the significant encounters God might arrange in verse 23. Second of all, the slow processes and God could choose. Found in verse 24 down through verse 27. But now thirdly, 
the strategic opportunities God will use. Chapter 26, verse 1. All is silent. Agrippa, the religious, unbeliever, Jewish king. Festus, secular unbeliever, a Roman governor. Everybody gathered together and says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. This man who thought that his liberties were so restricted is being guided by God to use those restricted liberties to give people an understanding where true freedom is found. Freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's Paul's turn. Maybe it's your turn. When the gap between the weight and fulfillment gets bridged, are you ready? After two plus years, Paul's ready. Then Paul stretched out his hand, which we are told historically is the typical way to begin a response in a Roman court of law. Stretched out his hand and then made his defense. The outstanding New England pastor, Phillips Brooks, was known for his poise. His friends, however, those who knew him well, knew that at times he suffered moments, his biographer tells us, of frustration and irritability. One moment a friend saw him pacing the floor like a caged lion. What's the trouble, Dr. Brooks? Asked the friend. Response. The trouble is, I'm in a hurry, and God isn't. Times of isolation are times of preparation. So we end with this. President Nixon once told about talking to Winston Churchill's son. Told him how much he admired the Prime Minister's great ability at giving extemporaneous speeches. And Churchill's son replied, oh yes, I've watched my father work for hours preparing for those extemporaneous speeches. And it could be that what God is doing now is he's been working for years in your life to prepare you for the extemporaneous speeches to come in life. All for his glory. Let's stand together. So, Father, the waiting room of life, what astounds us is Paul's ability to maintain a sense of cutting-edge readiness. So should we. His ability to link promises, 
standing before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel with the promise of going to Rome. The ability to link waiting with trusting. The ability to take what seems to be less ideal and humanize and link it to the ideal in your eyes. And so, Father, whatever it is that we're facing these coming days, speak at our point of need. And if there is one in any of these services, for those watching online today or days to come, who have put this whole matter of salvation in the waiting room, today is the day of salvation. Show them, Father, that the penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. True freedom is found in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. May they now put faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord, their Savior. And for all who know you, for all who love, in a very deep and profound way, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who mingle with religious and secular unbelievers alike, yet are called to multiply disciples for your honor and glory. Equip us now to be cutting-edge readiness with the ability to utilize the times of isolation, embrace the opportunity for preparation, and now execute your strategies for your glory as we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.